Hi, everybody, who will listen to this conversation on futureprimitive.org. I have the pleasure today of being at the home of Craig Barnes in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Craig Barnes is a writer. He has written a, a very enlightening book called In Search of the Feminine. He grew up in Colorado. He also write, wrote an autobiography about his um, childhood in Colorado called Growing Up True. Growing Up True. And Craig Barnes was also a trial lawyer. Let me ask you, Craig. Sure. I read that you began to think about misogyny and how uh, women have been submitted and submissive to men historically when you had this trial in Colorado that involved nurses. Would you speak about that? Yes, of course. The, 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 uh, the, the women, the nurses came to me in Denver in the early 1970s and said, some of us nurses as graduate nurses are paid less than tree trimmers. And the more we looked at it, we could see that they had responsibility for human life that they had to be able to analyze drugs and dish out uh, equations and calculations on their feet. They had 12-hour shifts. They had uh, nurturing requirements. They had uh, extraordinary supervisory requirements, educational requirements, experience requirements, and yet the graduate nurses were paid less than tree trimmers. Mm. And it seemed to me to be some, something fundamentally wrong with a system which could... Uh, so little recompense people who had, uh, who were life-preserving, life-saving. Yes. And um, so we did the first uh, comparable, so-called comparable worth case in the country, and we laid before the judge every classification in Denver City employment, uh, every uh, from parking meter attendants to nutritionists to dietitians to nurses and all the array of uh, city employment. And when you compared them by supervisory responsibility, education, experience, um, we found that at every level where the, the equation was the same between the, for those factors, if the classification was predominantly male, it was paid substantially more than with the same qualifications if it was predominantly female. What year was this? 74, 75, 76. Okay. You know, it took us about five years to prepare the case. The judge told me it was the best tried case he'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. said it was a great case, well done. Congratulations, counsel. And he ruled against us from the bench. Mm -hmm. The nurses had spent literally thousands of hours in, that, in helping prepare the, the statistical analysis. They were the best clients I ever had. They worked their tails off. And, the and I said, Judge, let me explain to you this. In every race case or ethnic uh, discrimination case, you've got to see the history. You've got to see what the predicate is upon which this discrimination is based. So when we're talking about race, we're talking about slavery. And there's yes. a predicate there. Yes. Well, what about the predicate for nurses? Why are nurses paid less? Well, the reason is because nurses were last, before they became public, they were nuns. And before they were nuns, they were not allowed to be nurses. They were, they were if they got into the... Uh, medical uh, business in the Middle Ages, they were burned. Mm. Let me take, take you, I said, Judge, let me take you to the witch burnings, and wow. you'll be able to see why we've got this inheritance down through the centuries, where if, as soon as they come into the marketplace, if they're nurses and they're, women, they're expected to be women, and they're expected to be paid less. And I said, it's, a, it's, it's a freshman economics 101, that if it's discrimination in the marketplace, you're going to be paid less. Judge said, not in my court. We're not going to go back into that history in my court. Mm. That was in the 1970s. And I mm. said to myself, there's a question here that maybe is too complex to be answered in court. Maybe this isn't the right forum. Uh, the Supreme Court would not hear the case, and so we couldn't get any further in the court system. But there must be a reason for this misogyny. There must be some place. I had a fabulous mother. Anybody who reads Growing Up True will be able to see she was just a wonderful human being full of exuberance and expectation and life. Uh, excuse me, but tell us the publisher that publishes... Fulcrum. Fulcrum. Okay. okay. That book is growing up true. And it's the story of my mother and my father settling on the plains and the wheat fields and establishing a family. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So you had a good family. I had a fabulous family. Mm, growing up on the on the irrigation ditches and haying in the summers and taking livestock and chickens to the county fair. I'm the grandest you know, the grandest achievement of my life is a grand champion rooster at the 1948 <laughs> Arapahoe County Fair <laughs> outside Littleton, Colorado. I had the best rooster the county ever saw. Did this rooster have a name? No, okay, this was the good. rooster. Oh, the this rooster. Was, this was the rooster. But I can describe today the the purple sheen on that rooster's tail, his magnificent comb, his red comb. He strutted around like a million bucks. Great rooster. Okay. Grand champion. That's the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. Did that at age 12. Wow. <laughs> Went downhill from there. So you think <laughs> this rooster was misogynistic? Well, I don't No, the rooster was quite even-handed. He, 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 but he was a rooster. <laughs> he was a rooster. He did what roosters do. <laughs> but that was, those were great days. I can remember my mother standing out in the middle of the wheat when the sun was going down and the wheat's turning gold in the sun and saying, oh, how lovely. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I, that stuck with me. And, I, and um, then for the judge to say, well, it's natural for women to be paid less than, than uh, in the professions because they're less equipped or because they have children or because they uh, break up their careers. I said, judge, these are women who are saving lives. They should be paid at least as much as tree trimmers. And he said, not, not in the 1970s. So we were talking about your mother standing in the field in Colorado and saying how beautiful, how well. Well, I have this recollection as a youngster of having her standing out there with her hair blowing in the afternoon breeze and looking out across the wheat that's bending back and forth in the wind and her saying, oh, how lovely. And here was a woman who, who, uh, when my father had to go off to war, said, okay, we'll handle it. You know, we'll, we'll do it. We'll mm-hmm. make it work. Mm-hmm. Or when he came back for uh, a weekend in uh, Washington, D.C., um, uh, she said, boys, uh, get somebody to feed the chickens. We're driving to Washington. Wow. So we drove to Washington. We slept under the trees in Hannibal, Missouri, out in the fog. Just drove off the road, slept under the trees, drove on to Washington. She got to spend a weekend with my father, and we turned around and drove back to Colorado. Uh-huh. And that was kind of, we're going to get it done, boys. Mm-hmm. woman she was. And then the judge said that women like that uh, were somehow inadequate, that they they uh, didn't have the stuff, even though they had the education and experience, uh, they didn't have the stuff to get paid the same mm-hmm. as men who were doing it. And I said, there's something fundamentally uh, not understood here. And it's not just the judge didn't get it, this society doesn't get it. Yes. So we need to look at a deeper level, and then I went on and did negotiations in uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the Soviet Union. And everywhere I went in those negotiations, I ran into the same and even deeper misogyny. In the, in uh, Russia, it was uh, egregious. The expectations for women were so low, and women playing t- off the men in a way that uh, could manipulate them, but couldn't uh, stand up to them. See? And so that wasn't good. And then I was involved in ethnic cleansing disputes down in Armenia, Azerbaijan, and uh, women were marginalized in, in those disputes or fell in line aggressively behind the ethnic cleansing slogans. Why? Why do women... I mean, we have a part in it. Why have we let men dominate us? And why, to a certain extent, have we pondered to men so long? For 3,500 years it's been dangerous, physically dangerous, to object. Yeah. And the earliest origins of this that that we've that I can now report about, having spent the last 12 years in that investigation, was that there was a time when women didn't pander to this. Mm-hmm. When women realized that they were the source and the continuation of life. That, that, was that they were the vessel through whom life continued. And men honored that. They had to be forcibly, two things, forcibly uh, retrained and mythologically retrained. And the mythologies of the early uh, biblical period and the mythologies of Greece did the job. Without the mythologies, 
uh, demonizing women. We never would have gotten to the place where, we were, where nurses were paid less than tree trimmers. No, I understand. But the mythology allowed the men in Azerbaijan and Armenia to beat their wives for if they withheld sex or if they went out and talked to people on their own or if they uh, were late for getting dinner or they didn't get the right dinner. Women are beaten. Not yes. just in Armenia, Azerbaijan. Oh. Oh They're probably God. beaten here in New Mexico. I and, know about that. Yeah, you probably know a lot more than I do. But it was a inherent with, I can remember a young lawyer friend of mine in Denver saying to his wife, get me a Coke. We were having a little social, get me a Coke. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. She's a slave to be ordered? Get yeah. me a Coke. Right. And so it, it's it, it's endemic, a pandemic across the world. It uh, is. So, and where does it come from? And the... What, what I eventually found was that it comes from the mythology. It comes from... The stories. The stories. Yes. And there are economic reasons. There were uh, horrific uh, natural disaster reasons that laid the groundwork. But it was the stories that crystallized the expectation that women would, uh, would uh, be dangerous if not controlled. Let's go back to Homer. Yes. 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 Well, Homer is the sort of the prime culprit. He's the prime danger. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the fellows who wrote Genesis were not equally bad. Um, Eve gets ridiculed and relocated in three chapters, the beginning of the Bible, to, to taken out of her role as a transmitter of knowledge and the transmitter of life and told she'd suffer forever and that her her children's children would suffer forever because of her insubordination. Well, now give me a break. Yeah, give me a break. When when have any of us not been insubordinate or had an independent thought? For that insubordination, women throughout history who might have looked to the Bible or looked to their expectation of whatever God means for some relief would turn, get to the Bible and ask the priest, and the priest would say, because they couldn't read the Bible, they were not allowed to read the Bible themselves, Uh the priest would say, Genesis says, this is your lot, lady. This is what you got. So that's one set of stories. But the other set of stories, going back to Homer, if, if it's not just Homer, but Homer's perhaps the best composite, but think in that time... That's a time when patriarchy is getting solidified. It's it's 750 B.C. Patriarchy's still in dispute. And somebody has to come along and say, this is why men are in control. And what do we get? We get a whole series of images that demonize women. Medea, Medusa, the Gorgon, the Sphinx, the Furies, the Sirens. All of them... Uh, known across the world, taught to me in the wheat fields of Littleton, Colorado in the 1940s. What do we know about uh, Gorgon? The Gorgon will t- look at a man and turn him to stone. What about Medusa? She's got snakes in her hair. Furious. What do the Furies do? Lure a man into the woods at night and tear him apart. Mm-hmm. Sirens will offer a man knowledge and then eat him up, leaving his bones putrid and dead on the rocks. Sphinxes will test a man's knowledge throw him over the rocks because he doesn't know the right answer. One after one, mm-hmm. images of the demonic. Why were those necessary? They were necessary because women said, are you kidding? Women said, and a lot of men must have said too, are you kidding that the only thing that matters is Herculean power? The only thing that matters is Achilles' power? Agamemnon, who will control empires and navies? Is that all that matters? A lot of people must have said, are you kidding? And so the storytellers come along, the ones who ratify the patriarchy, and say, "Uh, let me tell you about women, really. They'll seduce you. They'll offer you knowledge, tear you apart. And they don't have the gift of immortality. That's the big deal. Everybody would like to be immortal. Odysseus, on his way home from the Trojan War, stops finally after he's... Uh, been threatened by the sirens and his crew has been lost to Kirke and, and, and Charybdis. Kirke's obsession and Charybdis of tearing apart these mm-hmm. different images of the female. 
mm-hmm. he finally washes up, Odysseus the traveler washes up on the shores of Calypso's island. It's a beautiful island, the owls are sitting in the trees, the birds are singing, Calypso with her glorious hairs, sitting in her abode, weaving and singing. And Odysseus, oh my, this is quite nice. Homer says even a god would love this island. She's a goddess. Mm-hmm. And they fall in love and they spend. he spends seven years on the island with Calypso. And pretty soon Zeus is, and, and Athena say, wait a minute, he's got estates that are being eaten alive and divided by the suitors back home. He's about to, they don't say much about Penelope. They don't care much about his wife, but his estates are disappearing. Yeah. So uh, Athena and, and patriarchy is all about estates. Zeus is all about patriarchy. Athena is the hermaphrodite goddess who comes from Zeus, who's there to defend the patriarchy. It's all a simple patriarchal system. And that's, uh, so, so the chief patriarch, Zeus, and, and, and his, his sort of partner in crime, Athena, say to Odysseus, you got to go home. you got to go home. And Calypso, who's been loving this man, says, wait a minute, I love this man. This is my partner by love. And Zeus says, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. States, his estates, his property is what matters. And so uh, Calypso says, well, I could make him immortal. I could make him immortal. And an immortal immortality is the promise of the feminine. Immortality is the promise of the continuing cycles of life. Yes. The feminine is the vehicle which mimics in the human form the natural order of the universe. The natural order of the universe is the cycles of death and rebirth. The seasons. Seeds in the ground that come up in the spring. Seed dies and comes up in the spring. Life, women's cycles end and begin again. Life ends and begins again. And that's the story of... of uh, that's the template to which, if we adjust, we can find the real secret of life, if we adjust to the sun and the seasons and the moon. And Zeus says, no, 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 no. Go home and protect your property. So Calypso says, well, wait a minute. But what my offer is endless life. Yes. Through the feminine. The glorious, shining, bright-haired goddess through the feminine. She's a metaphor. Zeus says, no, no, no. She says, but this is love. And Zeus says, no, it's property. So... Calypso puts the clothes on him, makes him some beautiful, fine clothes. This is all about Homer. You asked about Homer. I'm just talking about Homer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are great stories. And yes. so uh, he, gets out, he, he gets out on the, the uh, raft, makes a raft, sails out on the sea. He's capsized. He's been out there 18 days. He's capsized, and he... Um, uh, a sea nymph appears and says to him, take off those beautiful clothes that Calypso's given you. Take them off. And take off the veil of immortality that she's given you and throw it over your shoulder and never look back. And Odysseus floats for three days naked in the sea. He's getting pretty tired. Floats for three days naked in the sea and washes up on the shore of a new island but there's a young woman who Homer tells us is planning for marriage. A marriage is the cornerstone of patriarchy. Yeah. You cannot have patriarchy without having women sequestered in marriage. Oh, speak about that. Well, if women have more than one partner, as Calypso might have had, or uh, other women, uh, women in the earlier ages did have, and that's a whole other archaeological study, but mm-hmm. that's in, in Search of the Lost Feminine too, but if, if women have more than one partner, the men can't tell who the sons are, their own sons are. Uh-huh. Women know, yes, but the men can't tell. In order to have a patriarch, you've got to know who my, I gotta know property. Who my sons property are. Property right. again. Yeah. It's about property. So yes. if I've got a lot of property, I've got excess property, I've got to decide who to give it to. Yeah. I'm going to give it to my son. Am I going to give it to your sons or yeah. his sons? Yeah. So in order to know who my sons are, I have to have you sequestered in marriage. So I can't have you, you know, with more than one partner because I won't know which sons are mine. So patriarchy absolutely depends on marriage. So when Odysseus floats up on the sand, he's exhausted, he's worn out, he's naked, he's lying there prostrate on the sand, and down to the sand comes a young girl who's 
Homer tells us is planning for marriage. Oh, all us Western readers now say, well, that's good. Mm-hmm. He's safe. He's, he's not with one of those goddess-like women who promise him to live forever. He's not with the Gorgons and the Sirens. He's got a woman who's playing on Marriage. Home ground. Yes. Home ground. And she says to him, her name is Masika'a, and she says to him, oh, you look pretty tired. And he says, he doesn't say, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I've been floating in the sea. He says, you look to me like a perfect woman for marriage. The opening speech, after he's been on the sea for 21 days now, the opening speech is about marriage. So we know that we've crossed a transition. Wow. And how did we get there? Well, next thing she does is anoint him with oil. Oh, my goodness. He's coming to the land of marriage. He gets anointed with oil. And, and Homer tells us, then he walks into town looking like a god. Mm-hmm. Look, like a god. Looking like a god. Standing up tall. He's not tired anymore. She puts new clothes on him, and he's looking like a god. Well, what's happened here? He's left the island of the old the old religion Calypso where she could a woman a beautiful singing natural woman could make him immortal she's given him clothes he's thrown the clothes off he's thrown away the veil of immortality he's floated for three days which is the period during which the moon is gone every month that's right it's the transition period that all the ancients knew yeah. it's the crossover period uh-huh it's the period at, that was celebrated in the older cultures because it's the, after which the return of fertility, the women's cycle being exactly the same as the, the, the moon cycle, this extraordinary miracle, but it goes away for, every, for three months, the moon disappears. So we, we cross the threshold time three days. He washes up on shore and he has a conversation about marriage. He gets new clothes and all Western readers now know he's safe. That's what Homer does to justify leaving behind women in the old traditional form and reestablishing the right intention for man, which is to protect his property. But let me ask you this. Why did this story take? Like at this moment, there are probably millions of writers, thousands of fabulously good writers all over the world, but a, a particular story takes. Why does this story take? Why is Homer chosen as the storyteller of the time rather than uh, somebody else? Well, probably it's not true that there were millions. There were probably One very set, few. Yeah. because And writing was just coming into existence. Uh-huh. So Homer was one of the first to get written down. I see. And there was, there was another one called Hesiod. Homer and Hesiod got written down in 750. But until that time we had... Uh, for 450 years before that time, we had what was called the Dark Ages, when writing just absolutely disappeared. So Homer was, uh, A, uh, one of the first to be written down. We're not sure whether he was a storyteller or a writer himself. But in the uh, Iliad, for example, there are no stories of written communications. There are notes between each other when it's about the Trojan War, which is 1300, 1200. We don't have writing then going on. So it's a very late uh, thing to happen, this writing. So that's one thing. Another is that that uh, Homer stands on the shoulders of a Greek civilization which expanded uh, and became the central cultural uh, civilization for Western thought. So that that he his writing just happened to be positioned more centrally for us than the uh, stories of Gilgamesh and the, and the uh, uh, Egyptian stories. So he had a greater influence because the Greek culture had a greater influence and spread farther. So there were those, uh, those composite things. Then, um, not just this one story, but story, each one of those people I mentioned, the stories of the Furies or the stories of Agamemnon. Uh, Agamemnon sails off to the Trojan War can't, he's got a thousand ships assembled. He's going to go restore Helen for what? To get Helen? What's he going for? Helen has violated a marriage. Yeah. Central problem for the patriarch. Can't let mm-hmm. that happen. So he's going off to get Helen back to put her back in Sparta to re- mm-hmm. reestablish a marriage. thousand ships, they won't go. Go to Delphi and say, what do we do? The Oracle of Delphi says, you've got to sacrifice your daughter. You've got you've to sacrifice Iphigenia. Yes. And Iphigenia says, well, if that's what it takes, 
and willingly has her throat cut, and the wind blows, and off goes Agamemnon. Those are stories about the diminishment, the disparagement, the degradation of women one by one. And what's happening to Greeks for Greeks is they're saying, what's a good woman? A good woman will give her life for the state, for the city. Yeah. And there, there are a, half a dozen stories of good young women giving their lives to save Athens, to save Hercules, to save Jason. That becomes the model, just as in Western history in America, the, the model man, which is not true at all about what happened here in the West, is the cowboy, who the Indian killer. That's not the story. Stuart Udall tells us that's, that's not the story, how the West was settled. But that became the story that everybody accepted of how the West was settled. So in the same way, uh, the Greeks so, were taught. So I'm saying, why do we accept one story rather than another? How does the story get buried? And another one, because I know you are a storyteller and you teach that changing the story changes one's life. Yes. How, how does this happen? Who knows? I think, you know, it's a sort of a function of the moment. And the, 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 the one thing about, that was going for Homer, was going for Shakespeare, was going for Dante, was that, that they were really good storytellers. Okay. That's a first. Yes. I mean, Homer's, reading Homer is brilliant stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reading Virgil is brilliant stuff. Mm-hmm. The fact that it happens to celebrate patriarchies is been overlooked for 2,800 years. Mostly, Homer's read because he's good literature. It's only, it may, I may be the first person, I don't mean this uh, with braggadocia, I've just not, I just haven't found anybody else. I may be the first person to say, wait a minute, Homer is a, is a, a, a propagandist for patriot. He's an agent. (laughs) He was an agent. Yeah. So, he's happened to be in line with the winners. Now you also speak about the explosion of the volcano yes. in Santorini being the moment where people turned against nature, against our mother. Yes. Would you elaborate a little bit about that? If we can imagine and what we can tell um, uh, from the looking at the Minoan archaeology that was on Santorini before the explosion. The explosion, best calculation, is 1500 BC. Before that, in the in the for a thousand years, there was on that island a very advanced culture, and we know because it uh, from the artifacts that were buried that uh, women were at the center in the painting and on the pots and on the uh, seal rings. Uh, lovely, lovely images of women dancing in the moonlight and and dancing naturally, uh, bare-breasted, uh, unafraid, sexually uh, alive, but not sexually harassed. Great difference. And we, we can see that in that archaeology. Women being brought gifts by men, women presiding at grand events, women uh, being waited on by monkeys and griffins, women dancing, undulating in the moonlight, obviously celebrated. And not it seems clear, not because one of them or another one, it seems clear to me at least, and I have to say that this is perhaps my thesis, but and it's a thesis in the book, in, the, in Search of the Lost Women, not because of, that this was a goddess. Great mistake of modern uh, archaeology and modern scholarship is to say, well, if she's at the center, she's a goddess. That means that she's not like us. It is far more plausible that she's at the center because it's female, mm-hmm. because it's the feminine, it's the regenerative principle, it's the principle of life going on, it's what makes life go on, and the closest thing we have in the human experience is the female. So uh, none of these archaeological paintings that we've got or the pot have a name. The Greeks all later on named them, Athena, Artemis, Demeter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, uh, Zeus, they're all named on the pots. These, this is a principle on the, in the, in the, on the Santorini material. 
the, the Cretan Minoan material, they're not named. It's a principle there. Flowers are blooming. The principle of the feminine, mm-hmm. the principle of sexuality, yes. the principle of ecstasy. ecstasy. Yes, ecstasy is right there. And ecstasy today is, is gets demonized. Yeah. But ecstasy associated only with sex. But ecstasy standing in the wind. Ecstasy like my mother standing in the wheat field saying, oh, how lovely. That's a that's ecstasy too. Holding the child, seeing the children play, seeing the the child curl up to the dog, mm-hmm. seeing the dog, your seeing dog. the dog. Yeah, I have a lovely dog. She's she leaps off of over logs. She doesn't step over. She leaps over logs. <laughs> She's and that's ecstasy. Yes, and ecstasy is celebrated on this old material. Then. And that civilization is probably the last of what was a culture that ran from Ireland, at least, to uh, Babylon. This is the last of these in 1500. They've been gradually being displaced by patriarchy, but it's still there on the islands. And then in 1500, Santorini blows up. There are pictures in the old Minoan uh, paintings that that associate the female form with the earth. There are there are wall paintings of rocks that are rising out of the ground, and first they're rocks, and then you realize, oh my goodness, they have the shape of women. They have the shape of women dancing, the same as the shape of the women dancing on the seal rings I've just been looking at, the same as seal women dancing on the pots. These, those rocks are partly rocks and partly women. Those rocks must mean the, 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 the creative expression of Mother Earth, of the earth as the regenerative principle. As this is the way life is, guys, life comes back through the cycles of the earth and the seasons. And over and over, the things that are celebrated are things that go away and return. Birds, snakes. There's one magnificent seal ring with uh, the women dancing, undulating in the sky, under the sky. And three signature statements. A chrysalis, which is a symbol of transformation. Worm comes in and the Butterfly comes out. Mm-hmm. A snake, which is a symbol of transformation. The snake loses its skin and goes in the ground and comes back. And a tadpole. Tadpole starts out. Tadpole becomes a frog. If, you, if it had written, women are the source of transformation and regeneration, it couldn't be any clearer. These three symbols just lined up there next to the three or four dancing women dancing on the seal ring. Seal, gold, gold seal ring. Magnificent statement. The feminine, not as Artemis or Athena or Hera, or Eve, or any goddess, but as the principle of transformation is right there. All of this is there abundantly in 1500. And then the volcano explodes. The source, the regenerative mother, explodes unearned and unnecessarily in our faces and destroys the whole island and destroys Crete, disrupts the seasons, delays the seasons, that is to say delays or interrupts the dependability of those cycles. Mm -hmm. The cosmic, psychological shock of that would have been greater even than the physical shock. Kali. Yeah. (laughs) Like Kali. Yes. How did this happen? They have to say. Now the the trauma of having had a dependable explanation for the way the world is and the way in which we ought to align our lives. We ought to align our lives with the moon and the sun and the way the world is. That is interrupted. And in that chaos, in 1450 BC, we get the first shards on the island of Crete with identification of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. The three male gods... Zeus, the thunder-bearer, thunderbolt-bearer, erratic, undependable, vicious, and mean, can hitch any time, mm-hmm. just like the explosion. Mm-hmm. Poseidon, the, the master of the waves. There was a tidal wave that some estimate as high as 90 meters after wow. this volcano, which absolutely washed out the northern colonies and Crete, took them out. Poseidon and Hades' death and death now with Poseidon is permanent. Philipso had said to Odysseus, I can make you immortal. Mm-hmm. Now, Hades gives you 
dark, dreary, endless, boring death, which is never, ever over. So the, that's an attempt to explain how this thing happened and what it means for our understanding of how the universe works. And our planet. Our planet, how it works. And from that root of that tremendous, tremendous disappointment, disillusionment comes patriarchy sweeping in. Now it's been doing its stuff in Sumeria and Babylon and Egypt, so it's been growing around. Yes. It's been becoming interdependent and interchangeable with war. But this is the end. This is where um, I would like to uh, invite you to come into telling us about the book that you are writing now. Mm. Because uh, a question I was going to ask you is, uh, why is, uh, uh, in this country and many others, is ecstasy so outlawed to a, in a certain way one could say that or I would say that and does this tie in with war and if you would speak about how you are evolving into your next book there is something seriously unbalanced about American civilization and maybe about western civilization Yes, seriously um, uh, detached from the nature of the observable universe, the nature of the observable cycles, detached from any reverence for life. There's a reverence for material gain, a reverence for power, a reverence for all the things that uh, get us power and material and property, which is what uh, Homer had in mind. Yes. The the Homeric uh, exposition has resulted exactly in where we are today. Property is everything. Yes. But the reverence for life and what ever produces life is almost a lost. Mm. It's only in us genetically. Mm-hmm. It's not in our stories. It's mm. in us because we can't help it, because it comes out of us when we help each other down the street. But it's not in us uh, uh, in our stories. And that loss has led the American civilization to a... It's almost like the difference between Michelangelo and uh, the uh, exaggerations of the 18th century uh, painting, the exaggerations of color and bulging muscles and things like that. We've lost a sense of proportion. And and uh, that sense of proportion now is about to do us in. And I see it in, and we all see it, we're after more of the same oil and, and political hegemony in the Middle East and we're forgetting what it's doing to life. Mm-hmm. So life is not in the equation. Power yeah. is in the equation. And I see it in part because of my background as a lawyer. There is a series, has been a series of extraordinary developments in Western history beginning most easily recognizably in 1215 with the Magna Carta in England when a king was forced to kneel down to the principles of fairness and common assembly and common decision-making. That principle evolved through English history in a most unusual way and in the in the 17th century gave rise to principles of habeas corpus and the rights of assembly and the right of people to gather. Uh, the idea that power derives not from the king but from uh, the people. That was that was such a heretical thought that a man by the name of Algernon Sidney in, in 1683 had his head chopped off mm-hmm. for thinking that power comes from the people. You and Timothy Leary would have said, well, oh my God, that certainly, yeah. certainly was not the right thing to take a man's head for. Yes, but well, other heads have rolled for that. A lot of other heads have rolled for that, yeah, for that or idea. Or life imprisonment or imprisonment. Yeah, exactly. And what one sees today is that after only a short 200-plus years, the American political experiment is moving back toward the powers of kings, very alike the powers of kings in the 17th, 16th centuries. And the very lessons we learn 
from people who lost their heads, like Algonon Sidney and others. The lessons that we learned that we put into the Constitution are being forgotten by George Bush and Dick Cheney. Yep. And that it doesn't seem to be enough, My the reason for my writing is that it doesn't seem to be enough simply to say we, we've we got to go back to the first uh, amendments, the first ten amendments, we've got to rebirth the rule of law. Uh, because people can't get their minds around the stories that gave rise to those principles. That's right. So my book, Democracy at the Crossroads, will be about... Democracy uh, at the Crossroads. Yes, yes. It'll be about the stories, the people who gave their lives, or who just stood up. There are some lawyers in our history that are magnificent. It's a hard thing to imagine. Lawyers are magnificent who stood up and said, Are you kidding? This is uh, The king does not have this power. Yes. And they, th- they were threatened with their lives. Some of them got away with it and some didn't. And now we're nobody is standing up in the Congress and saying to the president, are you kidding? The president is using Article Two powers in the American Constitution to obliterate, eliminate Article One legislative powers and Article Three judicial powers. He's, he's wiping out the other two major sections of the Constitution and saying, in a time of war, which I myself can unilaterally declare and will declare that will last as long as I proclaim it lasts, in a time of war, I have these unlimited powers. I can do torture. I can do imprisonment. I can do a search and seizure. I can listen to your email, Craig Barnes. I can listen to your, check your bank, your, your book loans. I can see what books you're reading. I can listen to your fo- your cell phone calls. That's because uh, it's a time of war. I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. It's yeah. a time of war, and, and I have to maybe, I'm really sorry, you might hope that this war in Iraq will be over soon, but I have to do Iran first. So speak about that. Yeah. Speak about that. I got so. Um, I mean, I've heard this a lot, but I got so frightened when you said uh, my book is partly about the build-up of the war in Iran. Yes. And it's so frightening to me. All the signs are that uh, are similar to the signs in 2002 and 2003 when the build-up to the war in Iraq was coming. The signs are very similar now. So the president said here just 10 days ago, uh, if uh, we go to war, have to attack Iran, we will do so because Iran has made that choice. They have threatened us. Same thing he said about Saddam Hussein in 2003. Saddam Hussein can decide whether we have this war. And if he decides that we have to have it, okay. He said that March 6, 2003, two weeks before he invaded uh, Iraq, he had... 150,000 troops ready to go. Today, he's steaming a second carrier task force into the Persian Gulf. Carrier task forces have airplanes. Airplanes are what are needed to take out potential nuclear sites or any military sites. Airplanes is all he needs. He doesn't need to send troops. So the issue of whether or not he has enough troops is not really on the table. So a task force goes in. He's saying it's Ahmadinejad's decision. He's saying... Oh, um, he's bringing to the Congress generals who will say uh, Iran is increasingly involved in uh, the war in Iraq. As if there somehow were no justification for Iran to be involved in its neighboring country protecting its Shiite uh, co-religionists that is as great as our justification for being how many thousand miles away from home sitting on top of somebody else's oil. Mm-hmm. So Iran should not be there because we say that it should not, and we keep hammering that. So day after day now, in the last two weeks, we've been hearing about dangers from Iran. In 2002, before this war was uh, proclaimed, the Iraq war was proclaimed, we had this steady drumbeat allowing us to do preemptive war, the announcement of the preemptive war policy. That policy is still in effect. It was time, the whole thing was time together with, in that case, going to the United Nations, in this case, getting the United Nations also to say, oh, Iran is a threat. Again, the same thing. And before then, it was time uh, to help Republicans win the 2002 elections. It did. The reason Hillary Clinton today got hooked on that vote to support the war was because it was before the November 2002 election. The political pressure was terrific. you got to be for the war. you got to be for letting us do what we need. Same thing's happening. I would imagine that there's at least a 50-50 chance 
between now and October of this year, we'll have an attack on Iran and hope, hope that John McCain, who thinks that we should be there and should do anything necessary, would be propelled to election by that. Well, well that's the big question, and uh, it's a, a question that a woman is asking you because you've studied this so much. Um, will the patriarchy go, or will they do a sin? The patriarchy will certainly um, end. The question is whether it will self-destruct or whether it will end of some in some gentler way. You cannot go on like this, dancing about like roosters, challenging anybody who who stands up and arches his neck. That's what we're doing. And with the weapons we've got, sooner or later the exchange will take us all down. So that's one way it could end. The other way it could end is that uh, we are in a time of extraordinary popular access to information, just like your conversations going on around the world. That's ex extraordinary sharing of information and opinion which has never been so widespread as, as it is today. Expansion of awareness. Expansion of awareness. The reason Eve was penalized was because she took fruit from the tree of knowledge. The reason the Sphinx was an evil uh, female form in the, for the Greeks was because she tested a man's knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's knowledge which is the danger to power. It's truth. Mm -hmm. And from to speak to the power of the feminine, there is a power in the combination of truth and harmlessness. Truth and harmlessness unraveled the British Empire through the mechanic yes. of Mohandas Gandhi. Gandhi. Truth and harmlessness unraveled American racism in the South through the genius of Martin Luther King. Truth and harmlessness unraveled the Soviet Empire through the leadership of people like Andrei Sakharov, mm -hmm. who simply studied the Helsinki Accords and told people what human rights were about and said Afghanistan is doing this in. And he sat out in Gorky in exile yes. and, and simply told the truth. Yes, yes. Uh, Timothy Leary saw himself as very close to uh, the American version of Sakharov. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, very good. So we thought a lot about Sakharov when Leary was in prison. Yes, I'll bet you did. And being in prison was, is sometimes the most leveraged position to be. Wow. Yeah. We have Vaclav Havel as well. We have yes, a, the yes. Velvet Revolution. Yeah. So you have hope that harmony will be restored. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. The issue is is not hope in the sense of sitting on a chair that isn't there. Yeah. As in faith on just that some miracle will happen. It's rather that if we really dispassionately analyze the last 50 years in Western European history, changes have occurred that were unthinkable for 2,000 years. Spain and England are not at it. Spain has a socialist president. Spain has a socialist president. England and Germany are not at it. France and England for a thousand years yes, were constantly trading territory, and they're not at it. And that no, France and Germany for a thousand, and and war between them today is really unthinkable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just just not going to happen. It's not going to happen between the English and the Americans, who for 150 years or 100 years were at it. Why not? Because it's simply totally counterproductive. It doesn't serve any of the ends that we have there. Well, that's an expanding, gradually expanding, little tiny revolution going on on the planet. And it, there's also a little revolution in people rising up in Nepal and people rising up in Tibet and people rising up in in Venezuela, and people rising up in Colombia. All of that is coming through the information revolution. Women presidents in South America. Women presidents. Amazing. And the forerunner to the Greek miracle was the writing that came with Homer and, the, and Hesiod. The forerunner to the Western European miracle was the printing press. 
And the forerunner to the miracle that's now going on on the planet is the Internet. Yes. Well, I wish that many, many, many people hear you. Um, and I want to ask you if there's anything you would like to add for our listeners before we close this. Well, it's a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I would just say this. It is very easy for us to be discouraged. It is very difficult for us to stay encouraged. There's so much that's going on, hunger and, and disaster. And we sometimes act as if we shouldn't do anything unless we could be sure we're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. But of course we can't be sure. Of course. But the only way we can be the only thing we can be sure of is if those of us who believe in life and the reverence for life, if we do nothing, we will guarantee the bad result. If we do everything we know how to do, there's a chance for life. What's we haven't any choice. Hmm. I so agree with you and I thank you. With all my heart, Craig Barnes. That was wonderful. Just wanted to add a little note here to say that uh, Craig Barnes' website is www.craig-barnes.com. Okay, thanks. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.